Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joe Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship Church in Boise, Idaho. Church Partnership Evangelism is committed to making disciple-making disciples and planting church-planting churches around the world, and God is giving fruit to our labors. Weekly, reports come to us of new believers who are repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. If you're interested in how our ministry might impact your life and church, or how you might join in contributing to our work abroad, go to traincpe.org. There are those we have trained who are going out this very week to engage friends and family in gospel conversations after having spent at least two months interceding every single day for those same individuals. This month, I invite prayers for our churches in northern India. There have been a wave of persecutions that are touching a number of the pastors and churches that we work with. The charge is that they are converting people. Pray in the face of the opposition they are facing that they may be filled with wisdom and boldness from the Holy Spirit. Pray as well that God would grant a great anointing on them and their gospel engagements. If you wish to learn more about our missions church here in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Now we turn back the clock 20 years and from the archives take up a lesson on the Apostle Simon, one of the least known of the Twelve. His name is mentioned only in the list of the twelve disciples found in four different locations in the New Testament. Nothing is said about him but his name and his former persuasion. He is called Simon the Zealot. That is it. That is all we know of him. Just a small pin dot of information regarding his person. But Herbert Lockyer reminds us that through small peepholes, large panoramas can be seen. So over the next couple of days, We'll be looking through the small people of this man's name and see what large panoramic story may unfold regarding Simon the Zealot, one of the twelve apostles of Christ. Now the first thing is this, what was a zealot? You know, saying that Simon was a zealot, Simon the Zealot was not simply a statement somehow assessing his personality or his characteristics, that this was a guy who was just passionate about everybody. This is not the guy who was, you know, out in front being the rah-rah cheerleader type, just a zealous guy. This is not what it means. When it says that Simon was a zealot, it was giving to Simon a very specific designation that told us a lot about the individual. It would be like saying Simon the communist, or it would be like saying Simon the anarchist. Based upon that, if you studied history, particularly in the early 20th century, you would be able to understand what the basic makeup was of the conviction, ideology, philosophy, lifestyle of a communist or an anarchist. The same can be said when you call a person a zealot. You see, the zealots were a certain secret political party that existed in Israel. They had as their hero a person named Judas of Maccabees, and back in the intertestinal period, at the end of the Old Testament and before the beginning of the New Testament, there was a period of time in which one of the leaders who was spawned off from the conquest of Alexander the Great took over the domain that is now Israel, and he went into the temple, and there in the temple he began to offer up pigs as sacrifices within the temple. It was known as the great abomination of desolation in the temple area. And as a result, there rose up an insurgency, a guerrilla group that was led by a person named Judas of Maccabees. And this guerrilla group went and threw off this power and resurrected or brought back the reign of Israel and Israelite people over the nation and reinstituted the laws. And on his deathbed, 
Judas of Maccabees, said, Be zealous for the law and remember that our only king is God. And this became the watchword of the zealots. They were the Pharisees of Pharisees. They were the individuals who were so devoted to every jot and tittle of the law and believed that only that law ought to be subscribed to in the nation. Not the law of Rome, not the law of the mongrel Herod, but only the law that was found in the Old Testament. And they also believed that only God had the right to be king, not Caesar, not Herod who actually declared himself and gave himself the title of king. And so they began to develop the secret group. They actually came into existence around the time at which we read of the birth of Jesus Christ. If you look in Luke chapter 2, you'll read that it was in that time that the census went out by Quirinius, the governor, it says, of Judea, and that all the world should be taxed. This was the command of Caesar. And Caesar was establishing a new kind of poll tax on the head of every person who was a part of the Roman Empire. And when this tax was put into effect by Quirinius, this was the last straw for these zealots. And so, under a gentleman by the name of Judas of Samala, they began to organize an insurgency group that made its aim to put to death anybody who was putting forward the rule of Rome. And they became a guerrilla group that did everything that they could to try to, by every way, to reintroduce into the nation of Israel the law as the supreme law, the law of the Old Testament. And God is the only king. That was their stated goal and objective to throw off the power of Rome. And they believed they could do it. The truth is that these individuals were patriots in the extreme. They were individuals who came from the strictest of the rabbinical schools. They could be compared today with those fervent pupils who are coming out of the most radical schools of the various Islamic clerics the radical Islamic clerics. They could be compared with the individuals who are now declaring jihad against the Western world. The name of the terrorist organization that we are now confronting in the United States. They were just like it. The fact is their commitment to the overthrow of Rome ultimately turned them to become something more than just a political party. They actually became a terroristic insurgency. And it's very interesting that their names changed eventually. They eventually became known not only as zealots, but another name was given to them. They were called the Zakari. And the reason they were called the Zakari was the Zakari was a, an, a lengthening of a term called the Sikka. And the Sikka was a knife with a curved blade that all the zealots were known to carry beneath their robes. And they would use it in order to assassinate not only all the Romans that were around them. And this is why the Romans all went with entourages. As time went by, all the Roman leaders had security all around them. But they also used it to put to death anyone who they felt was in any way supporting or encouraging or helping the rule of Rome over the nation of Israel. And so basically what Sakari means is assassins. And so the zealots became a group of assassins. If you want to get a sense of how committed these individuals were and how zealous they were in this kind of patriotic zeal, you can read some things that Josephus said. Josephus said this, a Jewish historian, he said this of these individuals, they do not mind dying by any kind of death, nor do they heed the torture of their kindred or their friends, nor can any fear make them call any man their lord. Josephus goes on to say, I hope that you don't think that I'm overstating the case. The reality is I'm not expressing to you clearly enough how violent these men are. A couple of stories are also communicated to us by Josephus. It tells us in 70 AD, 
and this is the time at which the end of the political movement of the Zealots came, the Zealots became to cause such a problem throughout the nation of Israel in seeking to undermine Roman authority that ultimately Rome got tired of the various insurrections that were rising up in Israel and decided to deal with it once for all. And so in 70 AD, the general Titus came from Rome and he laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And there as he laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, the people inside the city were slowly starving to death. And it's said that while they were inside the city, that there were different factions that were seeking to make peace with the Romans, seeking to moderate some kind of end to the siege but that while the siege was going on on the outside of the city, inside of the city, the zealots were conducting a civil war and that they were going throughout the city and they were murdering any individual who wanted to take a moderate position with the Romans, murdering any individual who was seeking to gather and organize people in order to negotiate with the Romans. Their crazed hatred for Rome and for the Romans was what resulted in ultimately the destruction of their city. Their own insane hatred of Rome resulted in the destruction, the absolute destruction of Jerusalem. And we know the story. Jerusalem was ultimately set on fire. The gold within the temple melted and sunk down in the rocks of the temple. And in a pursuit to reclaim all the gold, the soldiers of Rome began to uproot all the stones of the temple and destroy the temple entirely so that not a rock was laid upon one another. After Rome fell, there were a number of strongholds where the zealots seized control throughout Israel, and one of those places was called Masada, and it was the last stronghold to fall. It was commanded by a man by the name of Eliezer, and as they resisted the siege, they put up a long fight, but eventually it became clear that the Romans were ultimately going to overthrow them. And it was determined by these zealots that they would not give in to Rome, but they would first slaughter their wives and then their children and ultimately kill themselves rather than give in to Rome. This is what Josephus writes as a result of all this. He says this, quote, They tenderly embraced their wives, kissed their children, and then began the bloody work. 960 perished. Only two women and five children escaped by hiding in a cave. This is the background of Simon the zealot, you see. He was one of these individuals. He was a man fanatical in his nationalism, a man absolutely devoted to the law, a man who was bitter in his hatred for anything Roman and anyone connected or sympathetic with Rome. This is who Simon the Zealot was. This is how he was identified. Simon the Zealot. Now, something happened to Simon, something that changed him radically. Something that was so wonderful that as the authors recorded the names of all the disciples, they rejoiced in calling him Simon the Zealot and listing him in a totally different group of individuals than what he had been known in before. The very statement, Simon the Zealot, became this wonderful testimony of a change that had taken place in his life. And this is what his story was. And this is the second point. Simon had a story, and his story was this, that he met Jesus Christ and was powerfully and wonderfully and radically changed. He had at one point in time followed Judas of Samala, the radical insurrectionist, but now he would begin to follow a different leader. He would follow Jesus Christ. You know, we don't know exactly how it was that Simon met Jesus. 
We don't know exactly where it was that eventually fell under the influence of his teaching, where it was that he ultimately determined to follow him and make him his master in life. We can imagine initially that he went around wherever there were crowds forming and wherever there was a phenomenon in Israel taking place. You know, insurrectionists, political leaders want to be there. They want to know what's going on because they want to get a grasp of what's happening to find out whether this will support our cause or whether this will undermine our cause. And so, who knows, maybe the first time that Simon went and heard Jesus, he went as a spy to spy out this new instruction, to determine whether Jesus was going to be saying things that would support the insurrectionist movement of the zealots or whether Jesus was going to undermine it, to determine whether it was necessary to eradicate this man or somehow to politically leverage the influence he had on the people in order to gain influence in their own cause. We're not exactly sure how it was that he first went and heard about Jesus. Maybe he heard the whisperings and the rumors that Jesus was the Messiah that was coming. That was something the zealots were hoping for. In fact, a number of the zealots, the leaders of the zealots, and the ones before them came along and proposed at different times that they possibly were that new Messiah, or at least coming in the legacy of the Messiah. And so Simon went to check Jesus out. Somewhere along the line, something took place. Instead of him examining Jesus, as he stood before Jesus and heard what Jesus said, he realized that Jesus was examining him. As he listened to the words and the teachings of Christ, it wasn't as though Jesus was coming under his scrutiny, but he found that his own life and his own heart and his own soul was coming under the scrutiny of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And somewhere along the line, Simon determined to follow this one and put his trust in him. And he transferred all of his faith on Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. I want to extend to you a welcome to join our worship every Sunday at 11 a.m. in the Old White Church at 1023 East State Street in the Warm Springs area of Boise. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links. Until the next time, may God bless you.